Hello and greetings. We're glad that you've joined us. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Today we're going to be exploring what Paul says to the Philippians in his letter to the Philippians, beginning in chapter 3 and in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and in and anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have to often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So in Philippians chapter 1, 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy are writing to the saints of Philippi along with the overseers and deacons. In Acts 16, we learn about how that church was established around the year 51, despite persecution. And Paul is writing uh, while imprisoned in Rome, from clues we've seen in chapter 1 and we'll see in chapter 4. And that's around 60 or 62, so about a decade later in Acts 28. And he's writing to update the Philippians on his condition, on about Epaphroditus, and he provides exhortation and encouragement to Christians who are fairly mature. Previously, Paul has prayed to God in thankfulness for them and their growth in love and righteousness, that his condition is advancing the gospel, that some preach Christ from rivalry, but to die is gain, to live is Christ. Christ will be glorified whether he lives or dies, Paul lives or dies, and that Philippians are to live as worthy of the gospel, to suffer in Christ along with Paul. 
And that was chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul wants the Philippians to make his joy full by living in unity, to have the mind of Christ in them, to humble themselves uh, so God can exalt them in due time. They should obey and work out their salvation, for God is working in them, and they are to be as lights to a crooked generation. And he's just commended Timothy and Epaphroditus for their work and service in the Lord. And so as we see in chapter 3, he continues to exhort the Philippians. He again encourages Philippians to rejoice. Uh, in fact, uh, he begins with finally the toiloipon, which is technically the way you would begin a conclusion. And so we know Paul is a good preacher because uh, he has begun his conclusion and he's going to talk for a, a very good long time, uh, the substance of what we call two chapters. So he's uh, a little early there, as, as most preachers tend to be with conclusions. Toiloipon, finally, uh, the concluding things, the rest, rejoice in the Lord. That's a major theme of Paul at this time and in the letter. He says, to write the same things is no trouble to him and safe for them. Asphales. It's not an okner. It's not, it's not a hindrance or a burden to him, but it's an asphales for them. It's safe. Um, so we again see here that Paul has already said these things to Philippians. Nothing he's saying here is really new, except for perhaps things about his condition when it comes to the um, ethic and moral instruction in Jesus. The things are what he said before. Uh, but it's important to keep saying the same things. And he goes and, and begins in verse 2 through 7 a conversation he's probably had with the Philippians and has already had with uh, the Romans, with the Corinthians, and with the Galatians. Uh, these Judaizers uh, that seem to be causing difficulty. And he's warning about them. He calls them dogs, evil workers, the mutilated, catatomen. Only time it's used in the New Testament. Often use it as a very derisive term for uh, Jewish people, those who are circumcised. And, and that Paul would pull out a slur against his own people. Uh, really shows his feelings toward these teachers. Uh, you look at Romans 9, the first five verses, and the first uh, four verses of Romans 10, and you see Paul talking very kindly, favorably, wishing he could be condemned if that meant his people were going to be saved. Uh, but when he's talking about these Judaizers, uh, as in Galatians 5, 7 through 12, uh, he wishes they would emasculate themselves. Uh, really, he he's very, very sharply worded about them and very acrimonious about them because of the influence that they have. Uh, so we should not read what Paul's saying as, as anti-Semitic in terms of the idea that he is against his own people or the Jews. No, it's this certain group of people who are trying to bring in these teachings to uh, tempt the Gentiles to return to an idea that they can do certain things to earn their standing before God uh, and to somehow find Jesus through uh, these rituals that have been set aside. Instead, he, he says that we are the circumcision, that we are uh, serving. Latreuontes, sometimes translated worshipping, but the idea of Latreuontes is, is the ministration service uh, to God, uh, serving by the Spirit of God, and glorying, which is kauhomenoi, which is to boast or to vaunt in Christ Jesus, not the flesh. That the boasting is not, hey, I am a descendant of these people that are boast our vaunting is in, in what God has done for us in Christ. That's what he's trying to tell the Philippian Christians. And this is one of the clearer associations and identifications of the Christians in the church as the new Israel in the New Testament, that we are the circumcision. Because the Philippians, uh, there may be a few uh, Jewish Christians in the midst, uh, perhaps Lydia, uh, such sort of that, but uh, they're going to be in the minority. Philippi did not even have enough Jews to have a full synagogue. That's why they went to the prayer meeting in Acts 16 uh, at the side of the river. So 
most of the Philippians would have been Gentiles. And so we are the circumcision is to be a very strong identification with uh, that with the Christians. Uh, and Paul anticipates the confidence of these Judaizers in the flesh, their ancestry, their cultural identity. And he's saying, hey, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it's him. He was circumcised the eighth day, he was a Benjaminite, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee, blameless with respect to righteousness in the law. He's using all of that in terms of Jewish terms. He just kind of just gets right into Jewish jargon, speaks just as a Jew would, and say, hey, if anybody's going to make it by being a superstar Jewish person, it's going to be me. In Romans 3.20, he, of course, will talk about the fact that you actually can't be uh, justified by the works of the law. But that's, of course, uh, the difference in the whole thing that Paul has been arguing about uh, so many times uh, with the Judaizers and with uh, Israel in general. And that's in verses 4 through 6. So Paul says, hey, I could have done that. I was running that way. I had that standing. I had all of that stuff. I had it made in Judaism, but I consider all of that lost to gain Christ. And he says that in verse 7 because he's trying to show how much better it is to have what is in Christ than what you could get in Judaism. That if you it, All that you could get in Judaism is what Paul had, and he threw it all away so he could gain Christ. And that becomes a major theme here in verses 8 through 11, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He counts all things as lost to gain the knowledge of Christ. He loses his standing and his benefits. He considers them scubula. That's what you throw to dogs. And it's therefore garbage, even to the point of calling excrement, dung. Uh, he considers all of his standing, all what came before, as dung, as garbage, so that he can gain Christ. If he's gains Christ, what it means is that he's found in Jesus, not with Paul's righteousness, as from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, to know him, to the power of his resurrection, to have the fellowship, that koinonia, the common thing, the association, joint participation in his sufferings, so you can be conformed to more fizomenos uh, to his death, that, uh, to obtain by any means possible the resurrection from the dead. You, know, you talk earlier, the dangers of being conformed to the world in Romans 12, too. And the being shaped by something. Paul wants to be shaped into the form of Jesus' death. And, and it's a really great encapsulation of what Christianity is about. We're not trying to be found with our own righteousness as if we are awesome. Instead, we're to be trying to be found in the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. We're willing to be conformed to his sufferings, that we may have fellowship with, us, with, with all that he... Fellowship with the sufferings to be conformed to his death, that we can, by any means, obtain the resurrection. And so in verse 12... He, he makes it clear that he hasn't obtained it yet. He's not obtained uh, the resurrection. He has not been teteleoma, to be made complete or to be made perfect. But he presses on that he can obtain that which Christ had laid hold of him to obtain, as he says in verse 12. That he affirms again. He says it twice. It really says, look, I haven't gotten it yet. I haven't laid hold of the resurrection. That's what the it is, uh, going back all the way to verse 11. But in order to get it, He's willing to forget what lays behind. All of the things he's gone for. And even, in that sense, perhaps, even all he's already done in Christ. Not because it has no standing, but because he's pressing on. He doesn't want to be encumbered by what has happened. He wants to move on and get what you obtain when you run for Christ. Epic tinomenos, the stretching forward. This is a term used in running imagery. So we can just imagine a, a runner in a race. If you are 
going in a, in a long-distance race, you've got to ta- put aside all the thoughts of the past. Maybe you've had a few bad laps. You've got to put all this aside if you're going to give that last final burst to get through those last laps to finish strong. So that race imagery is very important, running that race. We see that also in Hebrews 12 and 1 Corinthians 9. And what's in front of him? The prize of the upward calling of God in Christ. And then he turns and says, and he expects those who are teleoi. Which is the same root word as the one in verse 12, but a different sense because he's including himself and is in the present. So that's why a lot of verses will say, those who are mature. He said, well, I have not been made perfect, but then you see, let those of us who are perfect, well, it's the same word, that's why I translate it in the same way, but there's a shade of nuance there different. He's trying to say, let those who are mature understand this. Those who've you know, been around the block a few times will understand, hey, we've got to forget what happened in the past. We've got to keep going on and doing what Jesus has told us to do to get through the resurrection. Uh, if anybody has another view, well, God's going to reveal it to them. We're only supposed to hold firm to what they've obtained in verse 15 and 16. And this, this kind of confused people. Wait a second, is Paul trying to say here that there are some people whom God has said one thing and other people whom God has said another? Well, he is seeming to expect there's a level of disagreement or some kind of dissension about what he's saying, that there is the possibility for disagreement. But he's expecting it to be an issue of maturity, not an issue of actually different revelation. Where those who are mature, those who have progressed, those who have experienced more, will understand it. He's expecting the less mature will eventually see the truth thanks to God's revelation through the Spirit, according to the gifts of the first dispensation, perhaps, or perhaps through the ability to continue to pursue the Christian life, and that they will understand later uh, what Paul is saying, that the more meaningful thing of what Paul is saying, if they are of any other mind. But at the time, they're to hold fast to what they've obtained. So maybe you're not, they aren't as mature as Paul is yet, that their day will come. They are to hold fast to what they obtained and to keep going. So Paul's really emphasized here what it's all about. Then he turns to talk about these two ways. And he tells in verse 17, join in imitating him, to observe, to scopite, which can mean mark, and does mean mark other place. To mark, uh, really it means to follow. You're, you're marking, you know, it's interesting with marking, because when you're marking, you're just setting somebody out. Uh, in Romans 16, you mark them to have nothing to do with them, but uh, when they're false teachers. But here he's saying, mark those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see people who are doing the right thing that you've seen in us, mark them so as to follow them. Do what they're doing. Uh, the same th- thread is in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-12, uh, the, the following traditions handed in, and uh, also will be a theme in Philippians 4 and verse 9. So there's to imitate, join imitating him, to follow those who are walking as they've seen in him, uh, the opposition, though, the thing that you've got to be concerned about, and the reason he says that, that there are many uh, that are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, their end is destruction, apoleia, which is loss or perdition in some versions. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their thoughts are unearthly things. He's spoken about them before. He's told them about these people before. And he tells them again, even with tears. But he says, our citizenship, in verse 20, politeiuma, which is interesting, because citizenship, politio, uh, the standing you have in a, in a city or a state, going back to Philippians one twenty seven, there to live as worthy of the gospel, living there was to behave as a citizen, uh, related verb to this here, noun, 
and our citizenship is in heaven. So our lives are to be heavenly here on earth, is the point. And from it, we're waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. And then he's got this great verse here in verse 21, describing that Jesus will fashion anew to metaschematise. Uh, schematics, you got that word in there, which is to change the figure, to transform the body, the soma, of our humiliation, the tape in, in noseos, uh, the very same thing Jesus did, he humiliated himself in Philippians 2.8, to conform, to morphon, like we saw in verse 10, to conform into his death. Uh, well, now he's saying to conform our body humiliation to the glory according to the power that all things have been subjected to, will tax side to him. So that he's going to conform our current bodies to be like his body. There's a lot of parallels between Philippians 3, 20, 21 here and 2, 5 through 11. The humiliation and exaltation of Christ. This is a resurrection language. The raising of the earthly, corrupted, mortal body and its transformation to the spirit-energized, incorruptible, immortal body that Paul spends and talks much more detail in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 58. So, the resurrection is the goal. That you, you, we, we press on to the goal to obtain the resurrection and that even when we see the two ways in life, we understand that it's all about, in the end, obtaining the resurrection. So the resurrection is this main theme. And it's very very telling, because what would explain why Paul was so willing to renounce his life in Judaism, his social standing, his cultural identity, to consider it as refuse or dung, to consider your whole way of life, that the what your fathers had handed down to you, what was something prized for your family for generation and generation, who you are, every cultural marker identities, things that we hold so precious and dear, and we look at people who would renounce such things and consider them uh, traitors or apostates or worse, Paul's doing all that, calls it dung. Why? Furthermore, what would cause anybody in their right mind to say, hey, I want to be joining that person in their sufferings and conform to his death? Especially the death that Jesus experienced. The resurrection of the dead. And that's explained so beautifully in Philippians 3.21 in light of Philippians 2.5-11 and 3.19. That Jesus experienced humiliation to be exalted in glory. The body of humiliation is the believer, of the believer is raised in glory. Those in the world have shame as their glory. But the Christian's glory is the hope of resurrection. Paul was a Christian. He was in a relationship with God in Christ. He was confident that in life or in death, Christ is glorified in him, but he recognized he had yet to obtain the resurrection. So he presses on to do so. So the resurrection is the game changer. The resurrection is the reason why people would do things that beforehand they would have thought was absolutely nuts and crazy and suicidal, but they're now willing to do it. Why? Because they can recognize the hope. When the only way that you will have life eternally is to participate jointly in Jesus' sufferings and be conformed to his death, even though that's agonizing, even though nothing else would justify that cost, the resurrection does. And that's why Paul pursues it. It's important to note that Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. That's a present tense thing in verse 20. But then in verse 21, we're awaiting that Savior who will raise the body. And so that's why the Christian faith has only ever been able to be made sense of and will continue to only be able to make sense of in light of the resurrection. 
It's the resurrection that changes everything. It's the resurrection that leads to things that would have been seen crazy, to seem normal, and to recognize that to settle for what is normal is insanity. That we must follow after Christ and suffer with Him so we can be glorified with Him. And to refuse to do that is craziness and insanity. To just live normal lives as everybody else uh, it just cannot cut it anymore. We have to strain forward to obtain the resurrection. Now, in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 3, we saw that Paul identifies Christians as a circumcision. And this is consistent with what he said in other places. Romans 2, 20 and 29, he says that those who are... Uh, circumcision is not really a matter of the flesh as much as it is of the spirit. That if you're circumcised in the flesh but not in the spirit, it's not going to do you any good. If you're circumcised in the spirit not in the flesh, it will. you can still, have st- uh, you can still come to God. Uh, in Galatians 6, 16, he says, Peace be upon the Israel of God. And he's not talking about physical Israel. And in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he looks at circumcision of the heart in term baptism as circumcision of the heart. Now, Paul has showed a lot of discontinuity with Israel in Philippians 3, 2. He calls them the dogs, the mutilators. He, he uses that slur. Again, that's, to think about using a slur that's been used against your people and now to use it against some of those people because what they're doing is pretty sharp. So there's that discontinuity. But yet... Paul is emphasizing continuity here, isn't he? Beware the circumcision, the mutilators. Beware all those people, for we are the circumcision. He is identifying Christians, and speaking of Christians, in terms of Israel. Because they are the people of God in Christ. Those who participate in the kingdom, which is the fulfillment of the law and the hope of Israel. Uh, The whole bankruptcy of the Judaizers and what people do are tempted by the Judaizers is that they are trying to return to what met its fulfillment in Jesus. We are part of the story of the people of God, therefore. We can learn from those who have come before us that we may serve God faithfully. That's the point of 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, about the scripture and its value for us. That's the point of Hebrews 11 and 12 and the hall of faith, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect, but we can learn from their example. That's how Paul's able to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that our forefathers... Uh, experienced the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, even though most of the Corinthians were not genetically related to those people. Because we share in the inheritance of the people of God. Their story and our story are part of God's story. That's a very powerful thing. It's also interesting to note how Paul emphasized he needs to press on to the goal, isn't it? Because let's face it, if anybody had the reason to think that everything's good, that they could just coast into the resurrection. It would be Paul, right? He's mature, he says in verse 15. He doesn't claim perfection, or that he's completed in verse 12. He has to forget what lays behind to stretch forward to what's ahead. He's already said he's confident that whether he lives or dies, Christ will be glorified in him. So it's not like he's sitting around and he's, you know, chewing on his fingernails, wondering if he's going to be saved or not. But he recognizes nonetheless that he hasn't obtained it yet. He has not reached the end. So he needs to keep going. He needs to press on. He's a strain forward. Even with all that he's done, even with all the suffering he's experienced, even with all of the opportunities he's had, he still needs to strain on until he obtains the resurrection. And if Paul felt that way, why would we believe otherwise about ourselves? Who among us is so bold? as to say that they reach more maturity than Paul. 
far be it from us to say such a thing. That's why we need to press on, too. And to realize we need to forget what's gone on before. Some of that stuff may have been great and wonderful for the kingdom and, and important for our growth in faith. We take those lessons, we strain forward. A lot of that stuff may have had some bad memories, some things we could have done differently or shamefully. We forget about them and we strain forward. We always are moving forward, uh, recognizing that how we finish that race is of the most utmost importance and obtain the resurrection. On the other hand, you also have the enemies of the cross. There's the citizens of the kingdom, and there's the enemies of the cross. Their end is perdition. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Has much changed in 1,950 years? It's an accurate assessment of our consumerist society. Glorying in its tolerance and progressivism, commending what God has condemned. But we need to be careful. Because Paul does not say this stuff with zest or zeal. He says it with tears. He says it mourning. He says it because this is horrible. That people are going to be condemned in this day. Because they go along with what's being said, or they are commending what's being said, or because they've been influenced by what's being said. He says it with tears. There's no sanctimony in Paul's voice about this. He's legitimately sad about this. It's an important thing for us to remember. There are times we need to critique culture. We, there's a lot of times. Christians need to stand up and be strongly critiquing culture, not only in the evident things, but even in the consumerist mentality and other things that even are often taken for granted within Christians and among in, in churches. But we always must do it with that humility and recognition that God does not want it to be so. God does not want them to be condemned. God wants them to turn and to be reconciled back to him. That the solution is not to think of them burning in hell with cackling glee, but to mourn because people are alienated from their God and separated from the right. And that must be our mentality as we speak about such things. So we've seen the message of Paul to the Philippian Christians here in Philippians chapter 3, to beware the Judaizers, that all of the standing that we might have means nothing in light of the hope of the resurrection, if we have not obtained it. That those who live in the world live by their belly, their glory is their, they, is their shame, they glory in their shame, but we live in the hope of the resurrection. That we need to press upward to the goal as Paul did, and that by any means possible that we should obtain the resurrection from the dead. Maybe you'd like to talk more about the resurrection. Maybe you've got some questions about what resurrection is or why it's so important. Or maybe you've come to the realization of how important that resurrection is and you need to strain forward and need to learn what it takes to be a Christian. Uh, maybe you just need to talk. Maybe you've got a prayer request. Any way I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or perhaps you're interested in learning more about the Venice Church of Christ. We're online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, Meetup. Twitter and other things at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. And also check out Westside Bible Studies, an opportunity to meet in the west side of Los Angeles and study the scriptures and to encourage one another at westsidebiblestudies.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.